Okay. Um, we've had to confront a level of destruction, failure, and bloodshed that feels far removed from our everyday lives, and on some level feels far removed from the gospel. There is some really challenging stuff that we are confronting in this book. And full disclosure, just on where I am coming from, um, by measure of all personality inventories, right, your Myers-Briggs, your Enneagram, I am conflict avoidant. <laughs> and you mix that with some Quaker ancestral DNA and the privilege of being born in the comfort and the relative peace of the suburban United States and just like a weak stomach when it comes to violence of any kind. And I get a little uncomfortable with these texts. Uh, but truer than all those aspects of my own personality and comfort is the reality that God's holiness demands that sin has real consequences. This isn't a surprise for us. We have read time and time again in Romans that the wages of sin are death. But confronted with it in this form in Joshua, I would guess that sits a little differently with all of us, especially coming off of last week's passage. There is a cultural distance when we read anything in scripture, but it maybe feels a little louder in Joshua. Joshua wasn't written to justify the actions of the Israelites taking and plundering the Canaanites to a 21st century audience. It was written to share what God was doing in a particular time and place among a particular people. I recently was shown a video of traffic in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I don't know if anyone here has traveled to Vietnam or just even seen a video of this before. I encourage you to look it up, but only if for some reason you're looking to raise your heart rate like right before bed. <laughs> it is an absolutely wild scene. I included a picture on your outline, but imagine an intersection with hundreds of vehicles coming and going in all directions, mostly motorbikes. There's no traffic lights. There's no lanes, no obvious right of way rules. It looks like absolute chaos. But as you watch, you realize that traffic always keeps moving. There are no accidents and that eventually everyone gets where they're trying to go. It is a system that works. Would it work in Fort Worth? No, <laughs> not at all. But it serves well a particular people in a particular place. It doesn't make much sense to us, but there's still a traffic pattern in these intersections. There are universal themes and experiences that we can relate to looking at the traffic in Ho Chi Minh. Things that we might be able to uniquely, if not completely, connect with our experience and learn from. If someone put me on a motorbike in Ho Chi Minh City, I'd give myself approximately two minutes before I burst into tears, and that's probably a generous estimation. But if I had grown up there and suddenly was in Fort Worth and had to navigate, say, the intersection of like Camp Bowie University 7th Street, I would be at a complete loss. Our perspective really matters. And despite these differences, um, residents of both cities know what it's like to get in a vehicle and have to travel from one place to another. We all know what it's like to wait longer than we would want to in traffic, or what it feels like to hesitate to merge into oncoming traffic. It's hard to be distracted by a passenger maybe in our back seat, to be running late. All these similar realities played out in unique contexts. This frame has been really helpful to me as I think about reading and learning from biblical passages that were written about a particular time and a particular people. God reveals himself in ways that his people can understand. And theologians call this accommodation. It's God communicating who he is and how he works in ways that are consistent with his character, but fit in the experiences and context that we as humans can understand. We might not relate to the specific and particular needs of the Israelites in this battle. In fact, it feels barbaric, it feels chaotic, but God was communicating to them through the norms of their time and place, and he was doing so out of the consistency of his character. The same character marked by holiness, justice, steadfast love, and covenant relationship that we interact with in our particular time and place. Like travel and traffic, consistent ideas, but experienced differently in different contexts. 
And Susan has done so much good work to help this book feel applicable and connected to the bigger story of scripture. And even though the content is challenging, hopefully in the previous weeks, you have seen that Joshua doesn't feel quite as intimidating as it did when we started. I, like Susan, um, am indebted to Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, who helped me understand better the parts of chapter eight that were culturally distant, yes, but still familiar in the ways that they communicated the personal and permanent way through covenant God desires to be with his people. Like all of scripture, this is a story about God's faithfulness to his people. And we are closing a section of Joshua that in many ways has been kind of a microcosm of the larger arc of all of scripture, really the larger arc of all things, creation, rebellion, restoration, God's creation of the world, man's rebellion that introduces sin and death, and God's promise to restore and redeem all things. These familiar realities played out in a culturally distant context. We'll get more into that later, but maybe we should actually spend some time reading our passage for today. Um, so we'll start at the beginning, and we'll take the passage kind of in sections, reflecting as we read. Um, so Joshua 8, verse 1 reads, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So even after the great military and moral, moral failure of the previous chapter, God's message for his people remains the same. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Stay the course. This is the land I have promised you. They returned to take the city of Ai. In chapter 7, right, we saw that they'd gone on their own, and we find that the Israelites post-defeat having lost men and having been chased off by Ai's much smaller military. Um, it's a victory that they assumed would easily be theirs. This time, though, it's clear that the ambush is Yahweh's idea and command. He has promised victory. What comes to mind for me is that familiar truth often read about in the Old Testament, but explicitly stated in Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who do so labor in vain. Unless the Lord makes the battle plan, those who fight do so in vain. And this chapter reads as a report of praise to Yahweh for the success of this plan. The reality is that the Israelites do not take the land. It is God that's going to give the land. And chapter 8 continues with more detail. Um, verse 3 reads, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and set them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when we come out against, uh, or when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. I want to draw our attention to verse 6, where I think we see God's graciousness to his people in a really surprising way. Verse 6 says, For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. In chapter 7, the Israelites really did flee from Ai's military. And now we see that God is using the Israelites' failure as a means of luring Ai's troops into their own defeat. Yes, there were real consequences to the Israelites' disobedience that we saw in chapter 7. They lost 36 of their own men. They suffered a huge setback. 
But God in his faithfulness also uses the Israelites' previous failure as a key element in the plan that secures their victory. Military strategy is of no real interest to me, but there is a reality here that I can relate to. It gives me hope that there might be a graciousness to how God uses my own failures as well. Not in a way that gives me a free pass, there are still consequences, but in a way that sanctifies and reminds me that sin and death do not have the last word. I encourage you to reflect on the ways that in seasons where in vain you might have tried to build your own kingdom, God graciously turned that hurt and that failure into a means for something beautiful. Increased empathy towards others, increased dependence on him, increased resolve to face whatever was coming next. And maybe it can also serve as an encouragement to break a pattern or confess that you are in a season where you're trying to do things on your own terms, knowing that you return to a God who does not say, I told you so, but with renewed mercy calls you to not be dismayed, to stay the course. So after the plan is given, we see Joshua uh, lead God's people with obedience into battle, just as God ordered. And verses 9 through 22 show how God's plan plays out in real life. Um, and if you flip to the back of your handout, I included like a very elementary battle kind of sketch. I use PowerPoint shape feature. I'm not a graphic designer. Honestly, I should have gotten Bailey to do it for me. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> with any luck, that'll kind of help paint a picture of what's going on. Um, so right in verses 9 through 22 tell a story of from the Israelite encampments, two groups are formed. One gets sent behind the city to ambush it, and another group stays to get the king of Ai's attention. Joshua is in the heart of this. He's clearly communicated God's plan and is in the valley with his men. He's not asking anything of them that he isn't also participating in. And so the king of Ai sees the Israelites and he starts to pursue Joshua and his men. And just like God had instructed in verse 6, Joshua and his men pretend that they've been defeated and they retreat away from Ai into the wilderness. Ai's defenders pursue what they assume is the entirety of the Israelite army and they abandon the city, which sets the stage for the other group of Israelites to ambush. They enter and capture, they seize and burn a defenseless eye. And once they see that the city is burning, Joshua and the men then turn around and launch an attack on the men of Ai who assumed they were pursuing them in defeat. The Israelite ambush forces then pursue Ai's defenders and attack them from the rear. So Ai's defenders are then surrounded and annihilated. And in the story, right, we've got a leader that spends the night among his men, leading them bravely into battle. We've got a false retreat. We've got a surprise ambush, like leadership, misdirection, redemption, like look out Top Gun. <laughs> this has all the makings of a war movie that we would love. Steven Spielberg could do really well with this as a movie script. And Dale Roth Davis comments on just the pure good storytelling that unfolds in this chapter. It is not written like a textbook with just facts, but it is revealed dramatically. It's told with twists and turns with great entertainment value, all for the glory and praise of God. Davis argues that this has implications for our worship and our witness. So I couldn't work in a 30 Rock reference this time, but I do get the chance to talk about one of my other favorite television shows uh, on Netflix called Dairy Girls. And it is about a group of teenage girls growing up in the midst of the troubles in Northern Ireland. And the troubles of the Civil War there are kind of compared and contrasted with the troubled soul that is just any teenage girl. And it is, it's hilarious, it's ridiculous, it's over the top in all the best ways. But when I think of storytelling, I am reminded of a character in the show, Uncle Colum, whose very presence is met with exasperation and annoyance because of the way that he tells stories. And not only does he speak with this dull, slow, monotone Irish accent, 
I wish I had a recording to share with you all because it's just <laughs> absurd. But his stories are so long-winded. And it's not that Calm's stories are bad. It is just that he talks so slowly and he feels the need to address every loose end and elaborate on details to the point where you get so bogged down that you couldn't care less what he has to say. So at one point, <laughs> Colm is telling this very real and wild story about how he was held at gunpoint by terrorists in his own home. They tied him to a radiator with his shoelaces and the men steal his van. But when he's telling this story um, to his family, it takes him about five minutes to distinguish that of the two men, one was taller and one was shorter, but only by about an inch. So who's really to say which one was taller and shorter? And <laughs> the whole family just like completely loses its interest. They start talking over and they start leaving the table. And what makes it so comedically brilliant, I think, is that we all know an Uncle Colum and then maybe on some level fear that we are an Uncle Colum. <laughs> and if you've grown up in the PCA or you spent a lot of time in reformed denominations, I think sometimes we are at risk of coming across like Uncle Colum in the way that we talk about God and his work among us. We are quick to get hung up on ironing out all these theological details in a way that does not necessarily draw others in. And I think there's a time and a place for that, but Davis points out and reminds us that we serve a fascinating God. So it is only natural that wonder and fascination should be at the heart of how we talk about him and how we talk to him. The writer Joshua models this for us. Good storytelling is not just a faithful account, but it's also a fascinating one. And speaking of good storytelling, if we think about the larger biblical story that all of scripture is a part of, God's creation of the world, man's rebellion that introduces sin and death, and God's promise to restore and redeem all things, the last couple chapters of Joshua have shown us this big picture on a smaller scale. The pattern of creation, rebellion, restoration on display in the conquest of the land. So chapter six, right, if you think back, God gives Israel their first major victory in the promised land, Jericho. And it's creating, so to speak, a way for God's people to have a promised permanent place to dwell with him. Just like in creation, there's one stipulation. As Adam and Eve were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the riches of Jericho are not to be plundered, but instead are to be devoted and destroyed as a recognition of God's gift of victory. Mm. Like the first fruits command established in Exodus, in which the first of the harvest is devoted in gratitude to the Lord, the first city is to be devoted to the Lord as well. God creates a relationship with his people that is dependent on them trusting him. That is the design. That is our design. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. In chapter 7, we see Israel rebel against this design. They try to take I without waiting for the Lord's invitation. And we see Achan and his family rebel against the specific order to not take anything from Jericho. Achan falls captive to the same serpent theology, as Dale Ralph Davis calls it, that Eve did in the garden. Achan in chapter 7 focuses not on the fact that God gave them the land, but instead on the restrictions that God imposes. Achan does not trust, but instead thinks he knows better and can do better for himself. Chapter 7, we see man's rebellion and its consequence, death. But thankfully, the story does not end there. In our chapter for today, chapter 8, the Battle of Ai, victory for, the Israel, for Israel is assured. Despite the rebellion, God remained faithful to his purposes and his promises to be with his people personally and permanently through the gift of the land and shows mercy to Israel. This battle also has one distinguishing feature from the Battle of Jericho that you might have caught in verse 2. God declares that Israel should do to Ai and its king as he did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourself. It makes Achan look quite the fool for his scarcity mindset. God stays true to his promise and Israel's military success is restored 
and the land is theirs, but not just the land. Additionally, God blesses his people with the riches of the land as well. This time, Israel gets to plunder and to keep the spoils of the city of Ai. And Melissa Kruger, she's the one that wrote the extra study um, that's in the binder. She points out in her study that it was not that the Lord wanted to withhold these good things from the Israelites, but he wanted them to trust him in the timing. And I'm not in a position where I am plundering things after defeat, but this idea of struggling to trust God's timing and provision, that is a reality that I understand. I often live with a chapter six and seven heart, prone to wander, prone to think God is holding out on me. I forget that the story isn't over yet. I'm reminded of the marshmallow test psychologists do with toddlers, where they put like a marshmallow in front of a kid and they tell the kid that if they wait and don't eat the marshmallow while the researcher is in the other room, then they will get two marshmallows. <laughs> and this idea, right, that kids' life outcomes will be determined by how they respond to the marshmallow test has largely been debunked, but I think the experiment still reveals something about the human heart. Delayed gratification, even on the smallest mini marshmallow level, is hard. Since Eve, humanity over and over again fails the marshmallow test. And spoiler alert, for the rest of the Old Testament, Israel will continue to do so. Yet God remains faithful to his promise to bring another marshmallow, so to speak, to restore his people fully to himself. And chapter 8's victory serves as a tangible reminder to the Israelites of that. God has promised his people the blessing of a personal and permanent relationship with him. But sin has planted in our hearts a seed of doubt that wonders if the second marshmallow really is coming, if it really is going to be worth it, if we really can trust God to provide. And, we can, uh, and if we can trust the terms of his provision. Davis writes, It is only as his people lose sight of his generosity, his provision, his goodness, that the cancer of covetedness consumes them. And I think one of the main ways that we lose sight of God's generosity, provision, and goodness is in the way that we define these terms and how they manifest themselves in our life. The question we might need to ask ourselves is who defines generosity, provision, and goodness for us? Melissa Kruger reminds us that just because the Lord withholds from us does not mean that he has failed in his goodness to us. Do we see generosity, provision, and goodness through the lens of serpent theology that looks for instant gratification or through the lens of the promises of God's permanent and personal covenant relationship with us that is rich in love and abundant in new mercy every morning? Serpent theology tells us that blessing is what God gives which leaves room for us to question why God gives doesn't always match what we want. Covenant theology defines blessing as God himself. I hope I'm not alone in saying that which definition I choose to live in light of depends on the day, the hour, maybe even the minute. In the uncertainty of life after I graduate in December, in singleness, what does God's generosity, provision, and goodness look like? What does it look like for me to believe that God is not withholding himself from me? In the often thankless role of motherhood, cooking, shuttling, refereeing, fights between siblings, what does it look like to believe that God is not withholding himself from you? In this economy, as they say, where there is financial strain and looming talk of recession, what does it look like to trust that God is not withholding himself? In a season of deep personal struggle in which you feel under attack from every angle, unable to catch a break, what does it look like to believe that God is not withholding himself? In grief, in boredom, in sickness, and I would love to offer a foolproof and new solution to guide us in our feeble but sincere effort to trust God is as good as he says he is. To trust that we are living in light of the full covenant promises in which we can trust God is not withholding himself. 
to define generosity, provision, and goodness on his terms and not our own. But alas, the practical application here is nothing new. It's nothing flashy. In Joshua 8, the message stays consistent with the means of grace we already know. Our trust in God's blessing is strengthened when we stay connected to God's people and when we stay connected to God's story. Familiar applications that in our rebellion we have often dismissed, yet God's call is to not be dismayed. It's to stay the course. Our connection to him is strengthened through community and story. And that is exactly what Joshua and the people do after the victory at Ai. Their celebration is all about connection. So verses 30 through 35 tell us how all of Israel gathers in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim with the Ark of the Covenant. And Joshua reads the law of Moses and the blessings and the curses that are found in Deuteronomy. And Sean Slate, who was my pastor in Knoxville, um, when talking about this passage, he draws our attention to verse 33, with high, which highlights the centrality of God's presence in the scene because of the Ark of the Covenant. Slate comments, God has gathered his people to stop and pause in the midst of all things to remind them, you belong to me. Everything I have is a gift that has come from my hand. On occasion, I will babysit for the sweet grandigan boys, uh, Becky's grandsons, and putting them to bed involves like a pretty typical routine. We'll read, we'll pray, and then we sing a hymn. And God bless them for listening to me sing an acapella solo right before bed. <laughs> Not sure how that would get anyone in the mood to go to sleep, but <laughs> um, it only gets worse because I have been caught multiple times confidently starting a hymn that at church I wouldn't ever feel the need to look at the bulletin or the screen during, but when it's just me, I'm not quite as successful. The lyrics get jumbled. I usually have a very confident first few lines and then that wanes. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. No, that is not the right order. <laughs> um, but what this routine has reminded me is that there are things I know within the context of community that I don't know by myself. And I think we see that same truth reflected in the end of chapter 8. There is Joshua reading the blessings and the curses before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Obedience and trust are not independent tasks. We encourage one another to believe in the goodness of God, to not be dismayed, to stay the course. Alone we jumble the lyrics, but together we sing with confidence. And the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is also a significant location in terms of the greater story of God's covenant relationship with his people. This valley would be located in Shechem, where God first established his covenant with Abraham, where the promise of a great nation and the land was first made in Genesis 12, roughly 600 years before the Battle of Ai. That is a long time. As God's people experience the fulfillment of that promise, they are taken to the place where it was first made. Meanwhile, like I get goosebumps when I really think about that. Place is such an important way God accommodated to the Israelites. In Joshua, we have seen rocks and graves and altars erected and named so that the Israelites might remember the character of God when they are in that place. And here, in this place, we as readers see the promises of God both made and then 600 years later fulfilled. When we stay connected to the story, when we study it, read it, sing of it, talk about it, we create a place in our hearts and minds where we can stay connected to the truth of what God promises he will fulfill as we wait for the long ago promise made that Jesus will return. And as we close, I want to um, kind of think more about the blessing and cursing language that we see in this passage. What does that mean? How do we relate to this? It can be kind of confusing in our day and age to think about blessings and curses. Um, and in that, I think we kind of fall captive to another false theology, 
Um, and it's not serpent theology, but what Sean Slate calls Chance the Rapper theology. Um, and Chance is a musical artist that had a hit song in 2016 in which there was this line, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. <laughs> um, and it, it was like, yes, I should not be a rapper, but can I please? Um, and it is repeated throughout, but um, in the same way that the song gets like, completely reduced to that one line when it gets stuck in my head, right? Like, that's really the only part of the song that I know. God is reduced when we live out of this reality. When Slate talks about this theology, he lays it out this way. Be bad, get cursed. Be good, get blessed. And in this, the motivating factor for our life with God becomes all about avoiding and achieving. Where is God in our avoiding and achieving? The answer is that he's not there. Are we seeking to be with God, or are we seeking to avoid curses and achieve blessings? Slate uses the example of reading with your children to flesh this out. If someone was to ask you why you spent the time to read with your children, I'm guessing your first thought would not be to say, well, studies show that reading with your child increases their success in school and is predictive for better outcomes later in life. You would say, because I love them, and this is the way that we enjoy spending time together. Yes, the implications for future success are there, those are true, but they are not the motivation. Cultivating the relationship is the motivation. God desires for a relationship with us. He is not a means to an end, because God is the blessing himself. God is not a tool. As Slate puts it, he is not the way that we get the life that we want, but God is life himself. In Del Ralph Davis, he puts it in a different, slightly different way. He says that we tend to be more interested in guidance than a right relationship with the guide. That one hits pretty close to home. <laughs> and on um, the flip side, experientially, I think um, our tendency for avoidance, right, that drive that we have to avoid bad things um, is not for nothing. We know that curses are real, right? Last week, we talked a lot about how sin has real consequences. Um, we were not short on coming up with examples of how the sin of an individual impacts a larger community. There are things that we do in life that lead to anxiety, division, exploitation, and death, things that do not reflect the character of God. And just as the blessing is God, curses are the absence of him. God explicitly writes out blessings and curses in Deuteronomy, and Joshua read them in this chapter as a reminder to the Israelites that the way of disobedience leads to death. We see the consequences of disobedience absent of faith in the way that Jericho was verbally cursed at the end of chapter 6. And in chapter 8, we see a specific punishment reserved for the king of Ai that through the context of the Old Testament, we know to be a curse as well. So verse 29 reads, And they hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Deuteronomy 21:23, part of the very blessings and curses that Israel would have read together in the valley, states that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The king of Ai, hung on a tree, is cursed as a representative for the wickedness of his people. So here in Joshua 8, the sins of Ai are dealt with, and God simultaneously fulfills the long-ago-made promise of land to his people. But we still have a problem. Right, Deuteronomy 9, 4-5, which Susan has referenced frequently, tells us that Israel was no more righteous than the Canaanites. The Israelites were not chosen because their obedience was something to be rewarded, but because it was God's purpose to choose them to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promises. The book of Joshua fulfills a promise, but it does not solve the ultimate problem. The covenant is renewed, God is faithful on his end, 
but it won't take us long to see the Israelites return to disobedience. A people called to be a blessing to the nations as a witness to God's covenant faithfulness walk in disobedience and continue to do things that lead to anxiety, division, exploitation, and death. God in the same covenant relationship will solve this problem, but to see how we must zoom out and fast forward, recognizing the larger covenant pattern and story God is authoring. Curses are real, and that is why in the Gospels we again see a king hung on a tree. Jesus on the cross takes the curse that we deserve. He serves as a representative for his people. In Christ, we see that God does not inflict a punishment that he is unwilling to take on for our sakes. Galatians 3.13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The king of I, just as guilty as his 12,000 constituents, is cursed. But Jesus, our king, blameless, free of wickedness, takes on a curse so that all Galatians goes on to say, might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ, we are not instruments of God's judgments as the Israelites were called to be, but God takes the judgment on himself so that we might be recipients of his mercy and his faithfulness. Jesus, as 1 John 2 puts it, is our advocate when we sin, and we are called to witness and walk with God in light of that. We do not walk in avoidance or achievement, but instead we walk with God. Knowing our blessing is God himself, and knowing our curses God has taken on himself so that we might be with him personally and permanently. Thanks be to God for that reality. Might his spirit kindly connect us to the community and the story that reminds us how to live in life of it being true. Amen. Thank you.